0: Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, over the past few weeks, we've seen three demonstrations in London which are protesting about the lockdown and indeed the removal of civil liberties. Is this a real thing? Are we, in fact, seeing the gradual erosion of centuries worth of civil liberties, or is this an overreaction? In fact, uh, Should we, in fact, give up some of those liberties in the face of this pandemic? Now, with me to discuss this today, I'm very pleased we have four guests. First of all, Mark Sidwell, who is the author of the New Culture Forum book, The Long March. Nigel Jones, historian and author. Dr. Kevin Corbett, who is a health scientist and retired nurse of 36 years standing. And the New Culture Forum's Rafe Hadelman, co-historian and commentator. Um, Thank you for joining us. Can I ask, first of all, as I did in the title there, um, are we basically seeing our civil liberties being eroded in a way that means that they are gone forever, Nigel? Could be, they're certainly being eroded and they could be gone forever.
1: But I think once governments take a modicum of power, they're very reluctant to release it again and I think that's the big danger that all these restrictions and rules have been imposed without parliamentary consent largely they've been nodded through because Mm -hmm. parliament was absent because of the pandemic Uh, and uh, I don't know when they're going to be given back to us and I think that's the big danger.
0: Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, you know, it's the, it's the classic saying, isn't it, that there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government mm-hmm. programme. Uh, the famous example might be like the, the pub restrictions that were put in place in 1914 to aid the war effort in World War I, uh, not repealed until the 1980s. Uh, so the, whatever you think in the short term about the uh, the new curfew, the, the 10 p.m. Uh, closing time for pubs, uh, it, even if it's a good idea in the short term, that doesn't mean that it's easy to get rid of. And this general concern I think that I have, I, and I you know, I have some sympathy for the need for the emergency action, but that everything seems to be done not on a sort of emergency basis with sunset clauses in a real sense that this is just temporary and we're going to get back to a, a more liberal society, but, but simply on the basis that we might need this for forever or just until we come up with a, a system of repeal and none of that's built in and that, that is a real reason for concern even if you think in the short term that this is worth doing.
0: Um, Kevin have you been surprised at basically how
3: compliant people have been? Extremely concerned about it and as somebody who's been involved in two of those protests in London over the last couple of months you can see at a granular level what we've just said, you know, in terms of the removal of rights and freedoms on the basis of a quite a hysterical response to what we're told is a public health issue. And at a granular level, you can see also the arbitrary nature of this as it impacts. For example, the BLM demonstrated all the way through the summer and the police knelt to them in London and the two protests that i was involved in the police didn't kneel to us they were actually sent in to do baton charges against peaceful Mm -hmm. protests we saw this particularly with the last one yes Yes. and and that was the last one that was coordinated by louise Cress crefield and piers Corbyn, on the 26th the one i was involved in as a speaker as an invited speaker on the 19th the TSG, the Terrorist Patrol Support Group, which is a riot police, were sent in to clear people. And these were people that were there. Uh, they were advised about social distancing. There had been a risk assessment. All the requirements had been carried out, and yet it was disproportionate response. And when you see that at a grassroots level, you know you can understand what's happening, you know, and these were doctors nurses talking to the public. And the question you have to ask is, okay, we're told there's a public health emergency. The public can see the flaws in the science from a very grassroots level. They see the tests have no accuracy. They see the track and trace doesn't work. They see QR codes being forced on them through trading standards which will be used to shut their businesses and stop their income. So at a, gra- at a very basic level, this has got to add up for people, you know. And people may have become compliant very quickly because of the globalist um, mantra, the globalist nature of the, the emergency. But at a grassroots level now, I think you're, fi- you're finding people are pushing back and people are realizing that a lot of things don't add up about the science and the tests and that what they've been told is not necessarily the truth. For example, the situation in the nursing homes. We heard a lot about the tests not being done and people being pushed into nursing homes from the hospital acute sector. What we didn't hear about was what the Queen's Nursing Institute came out with a few weeks ago, which is the results of a survey that showed that people, whole groups of people, and I'm quoting here, were coded not for resuscitation, On the basis of advice from hospitals and clinical commissioning groups so patients and residents were coded not for resuscitation not through negotiation with their clinicians which is the normal way of doing things but through diktat from faceless bureaucrats and that's quite concerning and that was a report by professor alison leary from Southbank University as professor of community nursing and it was f- commissioned by the Queen's Nursing Institute which is not a conspiratorial organization it is a very very credible research organization for community nursing so when the public were coming up to me at rallies up and down the country for the last couple of months saying to me uh, Kevin my mother was, had a form put in front of her in the nursing home and she's told to sign it which coded her not for resuscitation we were concerned that nobody picked up the phone to us it wasn't a decision that was negotiated with the doctor or nurse it's something that came down from above and now we have evidence of that in this report and it's those sorts of things peter that people are very concerned about do you you know do you think that
0: civil liberties the implication being ancient ones actually uh have really been affected, or do you think this is hyperbole?
4: It's not hyperbole at all. History shows us that um, liberty is lost, not always at the hands of a tyrant, but through well-intentioned measures, albeit misplaced measures. And there's this gen- gentle and gradual erosion that we're seeing. And we know full well from, from, from history that institutions, as we've seen with the Supreme Court, once institutions acquire power, they want to acquire more power, even if they don't intend to do so. And um, certainly, in, in terms of, of this government, n- that's precisely what we've seen. And you know, history has also shown us, as 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 you've just said. Well, one of the benefits of being a historian is you can actually look at things in perspective and take a broader picture and put things into context. And so in terms of global pandemics throughout history, this is perhaps the mildest we have ever seen. And yet we're employing and engaging the most extreme measures that we've ever seen. We're talking about measures which even in wartime we haven't seen. Um, Why? In order solely to protect people who are essentially above 65 or above 70 with comorbidities, that the entire population has now got to suffer the same sorts of shielding protections and it is a case that um, this is being affected through fear without any scientific justification it's the policy of fear that has been basically um, causing the British public to acquiesce into this because as you said there has to be justification for these policies and as we've seen the government may say that it's following the science but it's not following the science
2: well, you know, I think it's important when we look at this, that we try and steel man the arguments, you know, we try and say what's, what's the, you know, the best argument for the other side and, and you know, I am deeply concerned about what might be the long-term implications of the, of the changes in this sort of, uh, of, of liberties. I mean, I remember it, it's not that long ago that the idea of you know a traditional idea of the government stays out of people's bedrooms was a sort of basic idea of, of liberalism and now suddenly casual sex or outside an established relationship Matt Hancock is is telling us it's illegal Th- these are bizarre times in, in those ways very normal everyday liberties but at the same time it's not entirely uncontroversial to say that this is a very mild pandemic and it's worth saying what do we do if there are real dangers here, not the same dangers as might have been if it was the Black Death or if it was a a more severe one, but given that large numbers of people potentially could still die at a population level, given that it's very, very hard to shield these vulnerable populations, given that large numbers of the population come into contact with them or if they're younger. So I'm just saying it's important that we don't just, because we care about the liberties, give ourselves an easy time on thinking about the disease.
4: But Mark, we we discussed this in in April, and in April I I made the the very same argument that we have to actually balance lives with quality of life, which now people are calling livelihoods, but back then I I called it quality of life. And also, you know, people dying from other diseases, be it cancer, be be it heart disease and stroke, heart attacks rather, people being too scared to present themselves. And, you know, hospitals know full well the policies of triaging, right? Triaging is making a choice as to who is actually going to merit certain medical interventions and unfortunately we have a government following feelings rather than facts and we are at a point where actually the nation needs to consider triaging the nation and realising there are consequences at play here and as I said again in April it's the old philosophical argument of the trolley, you know, the, the trolley quandary if you have a trolley going down the tracks and you have the ability to divert the track to save one person but by doing so It may kill other people. What do you do? And unfortunately, my view then was that we have made the wrong decision. And I think, unfortunately, that, you know, the past few months are now bearing that out.
3: Mm. Well, I think you make a good point there, but I mean, to, to qualify it a little bit more, I'd say that the issue about triage and what doctors call the differential diagnosis when somebody presents to hospital with symptoms, is key to this, and we've had mislabelling of people as COVID cases who have a set of generic symptoms that could be hundreds of different things. And because of the the tsunami of propaganda that went ahead of this whole hysterical approach to COVID, doctors and nurses themselves have become victims perhaps or infected with perhaps that's the wrong word this propaganda so they interpret a set of generic symptoms with the government says is covid as covid before they even have a test and therefore people have been labeled as covid and fast-tracked down the pathway of ventilation and we know where that ended up
0: well, but you, if i remember when we discussed before you uh, wouldn't necessarily have thought it was hysterical, would you? you? You were a little bit more nuanced in your attitude to, to the disease, to the pandemic.
2: Yeah, and I think even though we know much more about it now, um, it still seems to me that if you look at the numbers and if you're trying to make these decisions under tremendous uncertainty, potentially still it's not implausible that very large numbers of people could die this winter of COVID, in amongst all of the, um, uh, the mislabelling and so forth. This is a very serious disease for certain people. We do have large enough numbers of those people in the UK. If we don't get lucky on T cell immunity and things like that, if we don't get lucky on a low level of herd immunity, there's plenty of people who could still get it and it could still kill them, who are going to be in hospital for a very long time even if they don't. These are serious effects to worry about, the organ damage, long COVID in the young and healthy. So so I think there are real problems there and you do have to, balance that and and simply the fact that we just don't know the answers and it's moving all the time and Mm. you have to act early in the nature of pandemics you have to act before you have the information before all the cases are there Mm. or you have what we had the first time around where boris Mm. waited to act but but is it is it really
3: a pandemic with the you know the the global statistic is something like a 99 percent recovery rate you know, I so mean, the, the, but, but I, I think is,
2: these are just games with words. If there's a, a new virus to which most people don't have any immunity, which is spreading around the world, potentially at, at exponential rates, and that can kill large numbers of people, and has been declared a pandemic by the WHO, who, you know, I have my own problems with, but you know, at least that's one definition of it. We can play games with words, but that's, that's a pandemic on, on most normal.
3: Well, WHO didn't declare it a pandemic yeah, initially, I remember, I remember exactly. and there was a lot of uncertainty over that. And I think, people die every year from flu. Yeah. I mean, well, where's the flu know. epidemic this year? Have you thought about that? Of course every so. year is a flu epidemic and lots of people die, older people die. Everybody who's worked in the NHS, and I've worked in it for 36 years, know about flu epidemics. And yet the numbers were greater in previous years when you add them up, not just flu, but bronchopneumonia and other chest conditions, which would really dwarf this COVID pandemic into a nutshell, really, when you look at it in the global. So, you know, I mean, that's an interesting point, but th- what seems to be happening here
0: is is basically uh judging whether this is a pandemic or not i is there a definite connection between one's concern about civil liberties and your skepticism or not about the pandemic that's that's the point you you can actually believe in the fact there's a pandemic but actually be surely very concerned about you know the the what seems to be arbitrary mm-hmm. uh, imposition of various restrictions yeah wouldn't you say no? Well I I would
1: say that and um, my uh, concerns as a historian as Rafe said you know being a historian you do get to look back at um, uh, uh, certain crises that have happened before and the the obvious ones are the two world wars and the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918-19 which is probably the most recent pandemic on the scale of COVID. It was much, much worse than COVID 50 million people across the world died of it, 20 million in Europe alone. Um, but there was nothing like these measures. People did wear masks. There was a lot of disinfecting of public transport buses and so on in those days, but we recovered very, very quickly. Uh, I mean, there were, there's been hundreds and thousands of books written on the First World War. There's been about 10 written on the pandemic which killed three times more or four times more people than the war and that gives you uh, an idea so i do think we have overreacted to this because even in a worst case scenario covid is going to be nothing like nothing like the scale of uh, of the spanish flu and we recovered from that within two three years uh after in the early 20s. So what really concerns me is the fact that um, we had a war cabinet in both world wars—a very narrow number, a small number of people conducting a world war. We've now have a very, very small number of people, possibly even smaller than the war than Churchill's and Lloyd George's war cabinets, um, conducting the war against COVID, and that does worry me. That the government is taking its advice from a very small group of scientists whose scientific advice is is contested, Um, but they're also hiding it not only from the public, the reasons for what they're doing, they're hiding it from Parliament as well, which is, if we are a democratic society, that is where it should be discussed and thrashed out, and it hasn't been, and that is gravely worrying.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, look, you know, there's been Brexit, and there's been the campaign for Brexit and the sovereignty of Parliament, And what has actually been extraordinary about this is that Parliament seems entirely irrelevant and no one's really protesting about it, uh, on left or right.
4: Well, it's quite perverse, isn't it? We've gone from a situation a few months ago where Parliament was thwarting the democratic will of the, of the, of yes. the people that, that the government was trying to install to now we've got the opposite situation where the government is acting irrespective of the wishes of Parliament to hold to government to account. So it's, it's an extremely perverse dichotomy here. But um, speaking of dichotomy, I also think there's a false dichotomy being set up here in terms of it's a question of liberty to the point of letting coronavirus rip through society without any checks at all. I don't think anyone is saying that. Um, so it's not a question of basically having you know, liberty or death quite literally in that context. I um, mean, look at the Asian flu of 56, 57, and you look at America particularly you know, under Eisenhower, a very comparable situation, far worse in, in many respects. N- nothing like the lo- we had no lockdown at all, the economy was able to bounce back and so forth. You know, scientists at the time in Sweden were saying look, the three basic things are wash your hands, keep social distance. I mean, that's basically all that you need to do. And that was the policy. We have to remember, Britain was embarked upon a similar policy to Sweden. And the Swedes were really encouraged by the fact that they weren't going to be the only ones going down this radical path. They were so heartened by the fact that we were coming along with them. And Chris Whitty, if you remember, originally had said, this is going to be mild effects for most people who will get over it the people who needed to be cocooned were those people who were over 70 the rest of society should go about their business and it was only when you had the mention of herd immunity and you had this panic in the media and this outrage in the media followed by neil ferguson's ridiculous notions of five hundred thousand dead in the imperial college modeling that the government panicked and changed course and of course they believed for some reason that the brits wouldn't actually be following any lockdown They expected that there would only be about a 70% or so adherence to the lockdown. And so they exaggerated beyond belief with this fear system and they used their effective slogans. You know, we had take back control. We had let's get Brexit done. And then they put in this new slogan about, about the lockdown and it worked too much. And once you've instilled fear in people... It's very hard then to backtrack and say, actually, we weren't really that serious. It wasn't that bad. And to save their own backs, they haven't been able to admit that. And so this lockdown that only was put into place for one reason, to flatten the curve, not to stop a single death. We were told it was simply to enable the NHS to gather its resources build up these hospitals, which had space for 4,000 people in the Nightingale Hospital here, only had 60 patients in any bedrooms. And yet after that, we're told that now the parameters have changed and they couldn't backtrack on the fear quota.
0: But you see, therefore, I mean, people watching this or watching the news will be thinking, you know, these ridiculous figures that you mentioned from Neil Ferguson, the fact that he, when he's done this before for other yeah. pandemics have been equally bad. Uh, why exactly. are they? Why are they taking notice again? Will you explain to me what is your? Why are well, they Particularly
1: missing? as Neil Ferguson himself promptly flouted the rules that he had recommended for his own um, nefarious purposes, um, going and um, screwing another man's wife. But um, um, that is that is part of what I was saying. That the, the terrible mistake is to take this advice from such a small group of people who had a dubious previous record because um, Neil Ferguson's record, foot and mouth, uh, all the other things that he got so hopelessly wrong. Why did the government then do a U-turn and change its policy, which had been, as Rafe said, following the Swedes, on the say-so of this man? Uh, it, it's it's
0: absurd, it's mad. have you been surprised, we're talking about civil liberties remember, um, I take that as well to be uh, freedom of assembly. You know, Mm -hmm. the Englishman's uh, uh, home is his castle, all of this sort of thing. One characteristic of the British and the English was always a kind of truculence about Mm -hmm. freedom and and not just simply going under the cosh, you know. I haven't seen that much of that characteristic around this time, would you say?
3: Well, I mean,
2: Boris did, did actually mention it when he did his broadcast the other week, and you know, he said, well, we're a freedom loving people and that's, maybe that's why we've had some difficulty and we haven't behaved, maybe um, Europeans would have been more, more tractable. So from his point of view, he has, he has at least referenced that, I thought it uh, was something. I mean, something that though that is worth saying, um, because obviously it's somewhat against the, the spirit around this particular table, and, and I suspect among those listening too, but uh, there is vast support in the country for Mm, these measures. And you can call it fear, but I mean, these are people thinking for themselves and able to access the evidence. And um, so I wouldn't be that dismissive about it. There there is a a vast um, majority in in the British people to to follow these measures. Now, I think they may not be that well informed on what the long-term economic consequences are, maybe on what the the long-term prospects are for getting traditional liberties back out of that, but for the moment at least that is there, and it has to be considered as well. We can't just say, this is just sort of the government versus the public or the people. The public are, are behind these measures in, in consideration. Well that's force. hardly
1: surprising because of the vast propaganda campaign that, yeah. that uh,
0: happened at the beginning to terrify and scare mm. people,
1: and um as yeah, someone hang said... On, hang on, yeah. hang on,
0: yes that's true. Uh, hang on, we, we sort of can't have our cake and eat it on the polls. Mm. I mean, first of all, it's true, it's something like 63% of people higher, uh, higher, and and indeed some people want even tougher uh, clothes within that. We managed not to get frightened by Project Fear with the referendum campaign, did we not? Mm -hmm. So therefore, you know, I mean, how do you account for this compliance?
4: But it's worth remembering that Britons are statistically the most scared people in Europe, if not the world. And that's so what I think about COVID. About COVID, and that is because mm. of the fear project. And the re—but the reason the fear project was inst—installed inst- was because mm. Boris Johnson did believe that we were a nation of liberty lovers, and that we, unless there was the fear of God put into us, mm. that we would actually resist all of this. He was proved wrong, and the, the fear <laughs> had a, adverse effects. Mm. But there was that policy. But of course, and of course, they had, and, and you're quite right. Johnson did say recently, "It's because we're an independent, liberty-loving people that we uh, have got worse results than you know, Germany, but then to, to use that logic, Spain is a much more liberty-loving place than we are, so I'm not really quite sure. Yeah,
0: but the, the point being is that, I mean, we were all of us probably involved in some way in the Brexit campaign or something. I mean, the fact is, from every single angle of our establishment, every single one, uh, was saying, this is going to be, well, World War III, actually, <laughs> at one point. And yet, people still had the guts. I mean, that's why we were so inspired. To go against that? Why are they not having the guts this time? Is it because it's about death?
3: Mm. Well, I think one point that's been raised is the word establishment and also the mainstream media and the way the government put this information out in a very propagandist way. And you had really saturation coverage in the media. It was, you know, you could actually look at. Um, the medical officer every five minutes on the TV with that poe face of him telling people that they're going to be dead and you know, so people responded to that you know, and people soaked that up and they weren't exposed to alternative views on what was happening and if you go up and down the country I have to take issue really there are alternatives there are other groups organising in every town in this country and organizing against the lockdown measures, meeting in private, sometimes subversively really undercover. So this is an alternative narrative that you don't hear in the mainstream.
2: Well I think the real problem in part there wasn't so much about the government as the sheer lack of quality in the in the mainstream or the the traditional media. I mean they they had the the traditional lobby correspondence. Not health They didn't know anything. They were interested in the political stories and that kind of suited the government because why would they have effective people to question them? But that that was a disaster.
3: And they weren't allowed to ask certain questions. For example like the tests the tests have no known accuracy. They have no gold standard, an independent method of verifying their effectiveness and their performance And that's why there's so many false positives, and all these test positives you're getting now are inflated false positives. They're not people with symptoms. They're people who've tested positive, and that doesn't necessarily mean they have a virus. That means they've tested positive for all sorts of other. I do think I
1: do think that Project Fear at the moment is breaking down actually, and I think this is particularly so with young people. I mean, I've got a 20-year-old daughter, second year at university. Ha, 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 since she didn't have a first year because of COVID, effectively. Um, and her and her friends, and I, I just see it myself traveling around on, on trains. OK, they're, they're, they're doing the, the, the mask wearing. They're minimal, minimal um, requirements. But basically, uh, as we saw in the summer, they're assembling in great numbers for, you know, um, in the parks when it was so hot and so on, because young people, have seen the statistics, and they know that, by and large, they're not threatened by this disease. And therefore, I think the project fear and the compliance is beginning to crack and crumble.
0: Uh, one thing is very important here is that we're talking very much in a British context, but, but when one says, oh, this is overstated and we're giving up liberties you know, as a result of it, the argument that comes back so often is, yes, but it's the whole world
3: doing it." Well, that's true, and I think, you know, uh, an approach to this is people are very happy to give up liberties if they understand the rationale for that, and that it makes sense on a day-to-day level. But when they see inconsistencies, when they see the information's like a sieve that water goes right through, you know, it doesn't make sense to ordinary people. They see, you know, this scientist ignoring the information and going off with somebody's wife. They see this politician testing positive and travelling up and down the country. You know, when they see that level of non-compliance from the experts and people that are supposed to be role modelling it, then of course it's going to undo all the good, inverted commas, that's been done. And at a basic level, people then become aware of, well, actually, Why should I wear a mask? What is the evidence for masking? And when you look at the advice from the experts that convinced the government to promote masking, they said there is no good evidence, there's no randomized controlled trials that show masking works. So why should we be using it? And it's actually
4: the global example of of erosion of civil liberties is another reason to be concerned because there's been uh, an international report put out showing that there are 80 countries around the world where this is happening in. And there's a great concern about how COVID is being used as a smokescreen in undemocratic regimes, in, in repressive regimes, to actually, you know, stamp down on the press, to to limit liberties, to actually have a reason to actually not hold elections. People don't <laughs> realise the laws in this country now permit the government to actually stop elections taking place as well and to close down borders and that, that, that's happening globally. So you even have, you know, Greenpeace and Liberty speaking out about this erosion of civil liberties globally. It's not This is not just some yeah. sort of right-wing conspiracy yeah. sort of thing. People but, but, on all but levels but are concerned about it. But conspiracies
2: are a, a danger. I, mean, I think one of the problems is, I think we could probably all agree, there are issues going on about civil liberties. There are, I would argue, at least some issues going on around the, the dangerousness of the virus that we should think about but the problem is when people start to see these problems and they use the internet and they're trying to work it out for themselves it can generate uh, a sort of a tremendous negation a sort of nihilism and paranoia in which there are plenty of conspiracy theories out there that are nonsense that are Mm. being spread and that can lead people towards uh, a sort of reaction against any kind of sensible action you know we could we could say that what's going on may be too much and overreaction but that, that doesn't mean there aren't things we should be doing and there is a danger that, that a move to say, well, it's all rubbish and we all need to, to, to listen to, to all of the rumours on, on the internet and, and go against all of this it means that we might throw everything out in the process. Well, you
3: know, you talk about listening to rumours on the internet. The paper that, that developed the tests, the PCR test, from a sage scientist, Maria Zambon, who's head of the Public Health England's testing for PCR for COVID was a paper shared across all the European health agencies in January. So all the PHEs in each country contributed to developing the workflow methodology for the COVID PCR test. And in that paper, they used rumour to develop the test because they went on the internet to find out whether the genetic sequence was a SARS-CoV sequence by looking at the internet in, in, in China. So they used rumour to develop the test. So when you talk about the public developing conspiracy theories and wild things from the internet, the scientists themselves use rumour to develop But that's my point. Test, I'm not saying you know. that the
2: internet isn't a tool. The problem is that as well as being a very valuable tool, it has all sorts of fringe nonsense that get talked as well and that yes. there is a danger that valuable things might be be thrown out in the process or, or paranoia might develop and um, that can have all sorts of unforeseen consequences.
3: Well, I think the public's had a lot of paranoia and hysteria from the government mm. and from the sage scientists. The corona hysteria, really.
0: Yeah, I think that w- what is, a lot of it comes down to, surely, is that why people say, well, if this is, you know, if there are ulterior motives or something, what are they? You know, if this is happening all over the world, you mentioned, you know, elections, you know, what actually is behind it then? I mean, we've heard of Bill Gates, we've heard of this, that and the other. What, you know, why would this be so uniformly being done by most governments? What is behind it? Then?
2: Who wants to be caught being wrong? Who wants you to know? be the person who says, it's fine, we'll stand back. And then suddenly in six months, hundreds of thousands of people are dead. And that can be blamed on you if you're doing what everyone else is doing, safety in numbers. I mean, OK, it might be wrong, but you know, I mean, Sweden got a lot of stick, right? And mm. let's face it, I mean, the death count is very bad. If it, it does seem to have gone down or sort of moderated in cases, but that, that might change. But, um, you know, if Sweden had gone even worse, how much trouble would they be in? I mean, this is a
0: case is slightly going off the civil liberties thing, but that the hysteria seems to have taken hold, particularly in countries which no longer have very much of a religious framework, mm. that actually don't really think mm. very much about death.
3: Well, that's a good point, and I think that what, you, what the, the, the backdrop to this, the terrain on which the seeds have fallen, the terrain on which they've grown, is, is one where um, medicine and biomedicine has become secular science and, you know, the, 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 ro- the, the, the position in which religion and spirituality had traditionally sat has gone, you know, it's empty and it's been, the position has been taken by biomedicine and people in white coats. I think partly this r- explains the government's response to SAGE and to, the, to Imperial College. And You know, the paper that Imperial College published with the 500,000 projection, they said that they're only dealing with the, the projections, they're not looking at the ethical and economic impact of their projections. And as an academic, I would fail an undergraduate student in a dissertation who did not address the, the economic, the cost-effective issues with this, the science, the, the nursing science, the medical science that I was testing that they were putting forward in their dissertation. And
4: on on this same point, it's it's very true, We, we were told for the first three months that there was only the science you know, as if there was only the one true, the one true faith. And for the first three three months, the media gave absolutely no exposure to contrarian scientists. Professor Carl Hennigan was only being touted by Peter Hitchens in in March, April, and May. You know, Dr. Gupta from Oxford University, Professor Woolhouse, all of these learned authorities. And also in, in Sweden, you know, not once were these people given platforms on the mainstream media. Who, in, people who were had actual clinicians' experience in
3: this, and they were treated as if they were heathens you know a- yes. apostates And you know in April Carl Hennigan said you know when you look at it overall um, you know you you look at the the reality and not the model the reality as it unfolds it is an ILE an influenza like episode uh, you know on the back of an influenza like episode which we had every year you know we have every year some are worse than others and so this was a, a, a a really very expert um, scientist saying this from Oxford University and it just did not get picked up except for Toby Young in Lockdown Skeptics. I,
1: th- I think it's absolutely right what you were saying Peter about a, a society in which um, death has become the last enemy, the, the, the great unmentionable. I mean the whole push of our medical science over the last since, since the second world war has been to extend life no matter what the quality of that life is. So you get people who, if left to nature, would have died. Uh, Their life is being prolonged. You know, dementia-ridden people in old old people's homes and so on. Um, And therefore, I think uh, a lot of the government's um, attitude towards it has been this death is the great fear. Death is, we're a secular society. By and large, we don't believe in life after death or immortality or anything like that. We're terrified of death, push it away,
0: extend life at all purposes. And I think that is the big project fear. Also, surely, isn't it that uh, we're terrified of death, uh, we have no framework for death anymore. And also we trust emotions more than rational thought, don't we? Yes. I mean, it's all about how do you feel? Yes. You know, how do you feel?
2: Yes, though I, I think that can probably go both ways. I think there's a lot of motivated reasoning on both sides with people not wanting it to be true or fearing yeah. in either case. There's a lot of generating of, of, of uh, theories or supporting of theories that support their emotional state. But I think one of the interesting things, not quite about death, but it was the shock of the vulnerability because lots of everyone knew the pandemic at some point was coming in some form. Mm. And but all of the thinking and the planning that went on about it assumed that the vulnerable were going to be in the megacities of, uh, of Africa, of South Asia, and that we were, in the West, were going to be relatively okay, but actually it turns out that we had hidden vulnerabilities that we didn't even see. We didn't think about the huge numbers of people who are overweight, the huge numbers of people who were relatively old in our, in our populations, and the very great difficulty of, of protecting those groups. So it was sort of out of nowhere, even for people who were thinking about these things ahead, that they they suddenly looked around and thought, oh God, we're actually much more vulnerable to this than we, we thought we were going to be. And that was a, a shock even to people who were thinking ahead. Of course, that was in the early days when people were thinking it was much more dangerous potentially than, than it turned out to be, but even so.
0: But also it's, uh, it has shown the weaknesses in our apparently extraordinary economic prosperity, hasn't it? I mean, you know, uh, the speed with which London seems to have just collapsed is, mm. is, is, is frightening, mm. actually, mm. is it not?
3: It is, and when you go into the City of London on a Monday and stand there at Bank Station above ground and you can count on one hand people around you when normally it'd be huge numbers. 350,000 people would come into the City of London every day and there's nothing like... There's less than 20% footfall. Oh, yes. And so so the markets have collapsed. You know, the housing markets that depend on the city have collapsed or collapsing. But I think... That aside, the economic impact, um, the the profound way that this hysteria has taken hold, and I think the hysteria and the fear that goes with it, because they I think they're a, a they're a unit really that works together, and that perception, that the way fear and hysteria have impacted on assessment of risk, you know, is quite profound. So risks have been magnified, you know. People die all the time in hospitals. People always do die in hospitals and nursing homes every year. And there's nothing unusual about that. And flu, influenza, chest infections always take people off. It's always the end stage in many diseases. And there's nothing different about that. But I think the way the risk has been magnified here has had a sinister appeal.
1: Yes, a, a sinister one indeed. And why I think this project, FEAR, has broadly worked whereas the Brexit project fear didn't, is that in, even if you take the remain, the Remainer's worst example, Brexit is not going to kill you. But the suggestion is that COVID, certainly at the beginning, that COVID very
0: likely will kill you. And that terrified people. Also, I think uh, maybe we shouldn't uh, underestimate the fact that we are blighted by short-term merchants. The politicians are short-term merchants. Yes. As you say, they don't want to be seen to want to have blood on their hands. Or whatever.
4: And it's the short-termism that actually is the other issue here because it's not only sinister, it's perverse that people in the short-term are trying to save the lives or extend the lives of people who would be dying within the next few years anyway, at the risk of actually having many, many more people die who have a quality, quality of years of life ahead of them, of potentially
0: decades, mm. that they will now never get to enjoy. Well, gentlemen, look, I mean, I think this one, as they say, is going to run and run. I think we're going to be talking about this uh, for some time, certainly in the new year. Um, how much it's going to change by then is anyone's guess. I've got my guess, but uh, anyway. Thank you very much to Nigel, to Mark, to Rafe, and to Kevin. Uh, do uh, subscribe to Counterculture, won't you? And uh, we will see you next week. Thank you.